If you are as big as that, you need to stay in the room. If you're a child and you want to go to kid stuff, rather than hear me preach, you can go on down there now. But if you want to stay, it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be really good. Hey, pastors have feelings too. What is this month's virtue down there? I don't think it's grace. Okay. Go on, get out of here. Okay. Um, I was in a village, I think it was outside of a place called Tomazoo in, in Haiti. And I was in a home visiting with some folks, and I looked over, and there were some of our shoe boxes. I don't know if they're ours, but some shoe boxes. And I, I was able to talk to the mom about that, and when they got those, and it's just it such a cool thing to actually see those somewhere, you know, out where these are, are sent off to. And one of the great things that we're going to be able to do this year, let me see if I can find one. If, uh-oh, if you have a box like this that has the barcode on it, we're going to be able to track that, and you can see where your box goes and where it ends up. I think most of ours are going to the Congo. I'm looking somebody to affirm this. Congo, the Philippines, and Haiti. Is that, is that correct? Um, but I gave most, I gave from here down a lot of these. Uh, I gave all of those. And I um, can't wait to see, see where those end up. I just think that's one of the, just, just some, it's a beautiful thing. And each child gets to hear the gospel, which is uh, an amazing way to, to do that. Uh, one of the things the mom told me when she was looking at the boxes is she had like several kids and they all got a box. And she said it immediately began this thing where they're looking in their box and they're looking over at their brother's box thinking, wait, I didn't get that, I want that. And they be, it just it started this trading war back and forth and you know, trying to do that. And a lot of us know how that is. You remember those days when you were kids. In fact, let me ask you, how many of you grew up with at least one either brother or sister? Okay, two sisters right, right on the front row. And I, I love that our family sits on the front row. Um, okay, a lot of people, that's a, most of us in the room probably can relate to that. Uh, I grew up with a sister a couple of years younger than I had a brother who was seven years younger. And there's a lot of great memories, right? You've probably got hilarious stories about your brother or sister, or you're still creating those stories uh, as we speak. And you have memories not just of special events, but just fun times. And there will come a day, and I look at you guys, and you guys too, you, there will come a time when you'll look back and you'll tell those stories, and they'll be so funny and you'll laugh all over again. But there's a flip side to that. There's the other side, and that's not that every day was a lot of fun or that every experience was really positive, right? There's such thing as sibling rivalry. That's a reality, and everybody who has a brother or sister has probably had an argument or two or some kind of a disagreement or a conflict or things uh, that, have, that have gone on. And that starts young. It starts young. I want to show you this. this is a, my, these are our two grandsons, and Rebecca sends this picture. I want you to look at Riley. He's, so, he's the older one. He's so delighted. But look at Graham. I'm not comfortable. This this is not a good idea. You know, that's, I think, it just, it's so funny how they relate to each other and get to know each other and love each other. You know, the Bible is full of these stories. Uh, Cain and Abel, 
And from the very beginning, you got Cain and Abel, Joseph and his brothers, and all of what happened there. The story of the prodigal son, that's about two brothers whose relationship was torn apart because of rebellion and jealousy and pride. But I think nowhere is this more true or better pictured uh, than the relationship of those twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. Even as they came out of the womb, Jacob was grabbing at the heels of Esau. I mean, it just began just like that. And their parents really didn't help. Uh, and I know we've got parents today who really watch their children real closely, or maybe it's, you know, you have one that has more in common with you than another. Uh, dad favored Esau. Mom doted on Jacob. And Jacob manipulated his brother as they got older uh, to giving up his family birthright. And then he tricked his dad into giving and passing on the family blessing to him rather than the older brother. And it created such a, a division uh, and drama in the family that Jacob had to leave. I mean, he just had, he fled uh, for his life. Uh, to a completely different place and stayed there. But 20 years later, with all of his family in tow, he returns. He comes back, and Esau is waiting with an army of 400 men in the road. And they met there. But rather than blood flowing, it was tears. It's this... It's really sweet and touching uh, reunion that happened. But it didn't take long for those two clans uh, to become separate nations with completely different uh, agendas. The descendants of Esau were the Edomites. And Jacob's, of course, the Israelites, or today we say Israelis. The land of Canaan couldn't sustain them both, so... Esau moved. He went to the hill country, which is called Edom, coincidentally, uh, because it means the color red, and, the, and the, the land there has a reddish tint to it. And today, uh, even though they're not descendants of, of Edom, uh, that land is controlled by Jordan. So if you know a little bit about Middle Eastern geography, you can kind of see in your imagination uh, wh where that is. Well, this animosity flared up uh, that's always there under the surface. There's always tension, but it flared up uh, generations later after Israel uh, was freed from slavery in Egypt, and they're making their way uh, to get back to where they want to be. Moses asked permission uh, to pass through uh, Edom on their way to the Promised Land. But the king of Edom said, and this is Numbers 20, you can go back and read it later, he said, no. No, you can't even come through here. You know how brothers and sisters, no, this is my side of the car or the van or whatever, you know, this is my side of the room, this is mine, this is, you know, and it was like this. No, you can't even pass through, you can't even walk on this land and set up his military force as a barricade to make sure they couldn't do that. And Israel's just trying to get somewhere. You know, they just want to get out of Egypt and find a home. Uh, but that was kind of what started or rekindled uh, this kind of a thing. Now, years later, David conquered the Edomites and actually 
kept them in, uh, what he, they were, Edom was subject to Israel all the way through Solomon's reign. So there was some kind of a peace there. Uh, but this grudge that started with the bickering of two brothers mushroomed into two nations at war. And it affected not just a few of the people around them and the other cultures, but almost all of civilization. 4,000 years later, that war seems to still be being fought. So we're going to look at this Old Testament book today of Obadiah. And if you like reading from your own scripture, you may want to go ahead and start looking for that because it's not the easiest book to find. In fact, when I started looking at this, I got to thinking, I don't believe I've ever heard a sermon on Obadiah, and I know I've never preached one on Obadiah. I even got to wondering, when's the last time I even read Obadiah or know very much about him? Um, Obadiah is another chapter in this ancient sibling rivalry between Jacob and Esau. Now, you may have heard of Obadiah. Uh, he is like the most minor of the minor prophets. How would you like that title? I mean, you barely got on the team. Yeah, I'm one of the prophets. Who are you? Obadiah. Oh, yeah, you're the guy with just one page in the Bible. You know, so he's the minor of the minor prophets. His book is only 21 verses long. It's the shortest book, of, uh, shortest in the Old Testament. Uh, I, last night, I, I just read it out loud, and I timed it, and it took me less than four minutes to read the entire book. So, guys, if you want to impress your parents, you can say, yeah, I just read a book of the Bible this afternoon, and just read Obadiah. In fact, we're going to read through it uh, as we go in the, in the worship service this morning. We don't, like I said, we don't know a lot about Obadiah, we don't know exactly where he lived or when he lived, but we do know that it was during a time when Judah and Jerusalem uh, was, it was, in, was invaded and they were attacked and they were plundered and ransacked. So it's probably, at least what I think, that being the scholar that I am, that this happened during or right after 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army had invaded and and Jerusalem, and they had taken out all these people and deported everybody into exile. So here's the deal. The Edomites, descendants um, of Jacob, you know, they, they, were both, they both go back, their bloodlines go back in the same family. They participated in this. I mean, it's one thing to have your family to try to hurt you, uh, excuse me, uh, strangers or enemies, but it's a completely different thing for your family to do that. At the very least, the Edomites enjoyed and they benefited from, from Judah's downfall. You can imagine how God's people felt. I mean, they must have been wondering, God, where are you in the midst of all of this? How can you just stand by and allow our enemies, even our brothers, and I said, how can you allow this to happen? Is there any justice? Don't you care? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever prayed something like that? Because life doesn't always go the way we want. It's not always fair. The good guys don't always win. 
It's not a movie. You know, it's not a novel. And it was the, the prophet Obadiah's job to speak into this. And as he does, he gets to the real root of what this circumstance, and I think a lot, maybe all of sibling rivalry, is, is all about. He sees this deeper problem, and that's what we're going to look at. So let's begin. I want to read Obadiah, uh, the first nine verses. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small. And that word small means insignificant, unimportant among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, and though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not, on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Wow, that's pretty intense. This book begins as God announces his judgment uh, and his plans against Edom. God reveals to Obadiah, I'm, you know, I'm declaring war on Edom, and I'm inviting anybody who wants to be on my side, they can join up. Though Edom was great in her own eyes, God says, I'm going to make you small. You don't have to read very far before you get the impression that Edom was enormously prideful. And if you look carefully, you can see that Edom had a lot of reasons to be proud. First, there were Edom's natural defenses. He notes, you live in the clefts of the rock and you make your home on high. The central area of Edom has these tall red sandstone cliffs. They go up about 5,000 feet. And they were almost impossible uh, to come against. And they were so powerful that military experts say that you could take maybe uh, 20 soldiers, 50 is at the most all you would need, and you could defend that entire place against a whole army. It was just this, it was this fascinating, fortified kind of a place. You've probably heard of Petra, maybe one of the most familiar places. Uh, it was this impenetrable fortress in Edom. No wonder the Edomites said to themselves, who can bring me down? And the implication is, not you, not anybody. But that's not all. Edom was really proud because of her wealth. Edom was situated along this trade route uh, between Syria, which is know, really in the news today, and Egypt. And this trade brought business, it brought commerce, 
Uh, they sold things like salt and copper and all the, you know, the incense and things that were important to people at those days. And they also would set up these toll roads uh, because you had to pass right through. And they would exact, is that the word, Ex extract? They would charge <laughs> these, these exorbitant toll prices. And they got really rich from all these caravans. But God says, when I'm done with you, there's not going to be anything left. He says, sometimes a thief will come and they'll steal something, but they'll forget. And they go, oh, look, they left. You ever had that happen or heard somebody? Look, yeah, but they left my iPad sitting right there. Or they, they didn't even take this and they took this other thing. He says, that's not going to happen. He said, even harvesters, and, and, you know, they, they take everything, but even those people leave a grape behind. You know, you come in behind and think, well, there's a little bit of something left. They just didn't pick up everything. He goes, not when you're destroyed. There's not going to be anything. It's just all going to be gone. You're going to be ransomed. You're going to be pillaged. But they were proud because they were so rich. And if that weren't enough, Eli had powerful allies. If somehow they needed help in some kind of a circumstance, they could always call on their powerful friends. But God says, all your allies are going to force you to your own border. Your friends, they're going to bail on you. And you're going to be overpowered. One more thing. Verse 8 mentions these wise men from Edom. The Edomites were known for their wisdom. But it wasn't godly wisdom. It was worldly wisdom. And this is kind of unique because the Edomites left no record of any allegiance to any god. Now, that's very unique. They were the, like the first secular society. You know, we think we've seen this in our lifetime, at least my generation. We think, wow, I've seen people who've just totally cut themselves off from any spiritual connections with God at all. But this had happened all the way back at this time. They were a secular society. They thought so much of themselves, they didn't need any higher power. We got this. We can do this. God says, I'll destroy the wise men of Edom. So they had natural defenses, powerful allies, a booming economy, and they were intellectually gifted. No wonder they were so proud of themselves. But one of the things that we know about God, that he hates arrogance. The first sin was the sin of of a proud angel who wanted to be equal with God. And later, he, that same angel tempted the, the first woman you know, by saying, eat this fruit and you'll be like God. You see what he appealed to within human beings? It was this pride. And to this day, Satan loves to cultivate within individuals or within nations an attitude that says, I don't want anybody to run my life except me. I can do it best. I've got it what it takes. Uh, just leave me alone. The Edomites trusted in all those things. Uh, and people today trust in a lot of different things. What about you? Where, what do you trust in? I mean, really, beyond all the religious talk, beyond what sounds like the right Sunday school answer, 
What do you trust in him? What do you have confidence in? See, you know, God wants you, like the song we sang a few moments ago, you know, he wants you to know that you're secure. He wants you to feel that. But that's not coming from your accomplishments, your bank account, your brains, your experience, whatever it is you think you've got going on for you. He doesn't want it to come from that, but from him. Our confidence is in Christ. The reason that he knows what pride causes us to do, he, he gets that. Pride is something, it's in our heart, and we can't always see in our heart. We can't discern. I mean, how many times have you missed that? And you think, yeah, I kind of understand, and I, I, I understand myself, and I know, and then later you realize, no, I wasn't really on target at all, because we don't know our hearts. So in verses 10 to 14, God reveals how, at least in this circumstance, how this, this Edomite pride manifests itself and sometimes how this happens in us. So let's look at verse 10 and 14. He says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame will cover you and you should be cut off forever. And on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you are like one of them. You are one of those. He says, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster on the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off uh, his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. And these are the charges. God is like, he's saying, I see these things. I, I, I'm watching you. I see what you're doing. And I bring this against you. I want you to notice that all of these things were especially deplorable because they were directed toward your brother Jacob. He says, it's not like you're just doing this to anybody. You're doing this to your family. You're doing this to people. You, you shouldn't do that. You know, and God goes all the way back to the story of those two brothers, Jacob and Esau. They were brothers, and brothers aren't supposed to treat each other like that. They should rush to one another's defense, but the Edomites had just trashed that relationship. I remember when I was a kid and my sister and I sometimes would get, we were just really different in our temperaments and personalities. And, and so we would get into these things, you know, with one another and we'd go back and forth and everything. But let somebody else, there was a kid down the neighborhood that started kind of bullying her and who rushes to her, her defense? It was me. I didn't like the kid anyway and I was just kind of looking for an excuse, but, you know, it was my sister and it's like, hey, I can do that. I can knock her around or whatever. But you can't do that. And we're kind of like that sometimes, right? You talk about your mama, and that's okay. But if you're married to somebody, don't talk about their mama. You know, all of a sudden, everything's changed. Well, you said that. You said it. Well, yeah, but you don't say that about my mother. You know, we kind of get defensive. When it, and that's the way it should be. But that's not the way it was. In this circumstance, he says, this is your brother, and you are helping people to try to destroy them. He mentions several things. He says, first, the violence done to your brother Jacob. How much of the violence 
in our society is because of pride. I think it's a lot of it. It's a lot of it. I grew up, I'm not going to go into, you know, I was a rough neighborhood because probably everybody's had different stories, but fights were really kind of common. And I can't tell you how many of those fights were over nothing. It was just ego and it's just pride. And then we have adult versions of that even now. And some of the conflicts that you get into and some of the relationship struggles that you worry about and some of the anxiety even about holidays and being around your family, it's just pride. It's just that you've been wounded and that your ego's involved. Well, this story goes all the way back uh, to a root like that. And that's where it began. And also, saying there's this indifference. In verse 11, he says, they stood aloof when and strangers carried off their wealth and foreigners entered the gates. I see this in a lot of ways. I see it in marriages. How is it a couple can get to a place where they're just indifferent to one another's needs or problems? I've heard this in counseling. You've heard it as you've talked to friends and people you know. Well, my husband's just indifferent to me. He doesn't, he doesn't really care about me. I don't think he cares. I, don't, I can't tell. He, he doesn't care. Or she doesn't pay any attention to me. She ignores me. She doesn't care. But if you look deeper, you begin to see that there's some selfishness and some pride. There's some old wounds. There's just a lot of ego that's at the bottom of that, at the source of the conflict. He mentioned something else. He says, not only do they stand aloof, but they gloated. And I read that and I thought, well, there's a word you don't read every day. We don't use that a lot. Well, I was just, yeah, I was just gloating. I was just kind of doing some gloating. And they rejoiced. They even boasted. You know, they were bragging about their brother's calamity. Folks, what is that? What, what is it inside of us that kind of secretly enjoys seeing somebody else go down? Even a brother. Even a sister. This word gloat got my attention. It means to look down on, or it, it actually means an inappropriate curiosity or nosiness about someone's tragedy. That's why I love being a Baptist. I love being a Christian because we can find out those things simply by saying, well, how can, how can we be praying? You know, well, I just want to share this as a prayer request. And then you can tell all the details, and it's okay because we've kind of sanitized it. But that's kind of what this means. He said, you stood aloof, and you didn't help, and you didn't step into the situation, but you sure wanted to know every gory detail about their downfall. Obadiah takes it another step. He says, they actually kicked them when they're down. They marched through the gates. They seized their wealth in the day of this disaster. Uh, this version says calamity over and over. And he says they waited at the crossroads to either cut down those survivors or to capture them and turn them over to the enemy. Hey, look, we've got, here's our brothers for you. We, we saw them trying to escape, so we, we got them. We got everything, everything. That's what they were doing. They waited. They, they were just so proud and the self-driven heart is often really happy to personally benefit from another person's problems. I don't know why that is, unless it makes us feel better about ourselves, if it boosts our esteem. Well, you know, we think, well, at least I'm not that guy. Well, at least I'm not this bad, you know, as she is. 
I don't know why that is, but that's, that's kind of what happens. And the Lord said three times, you should not have done this. Can you just feel that? You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done that. So the question, I wrote this in my journal, same question people have been asking a long time. When the Lord, I need definition. Who is my brother? Who exactly are we talking about here? And this week, our whole nation, the whole world has been struggling with this. Who's my brother? And those are the charges. And God says, this is how your pride manifests itself. And the worst thing you did is that you did this to your brother. You did this to kinfolk. And maybe you kind of wonder like me, do I have Edomite pride running through my veins? I know I do. We look for the signs because pride that resides, pride that hides down in our heart will eventually show up. Everything inside eventually leaks out. And I don't know, you think you can cover and you think you can hide, you think you can misdirect, but who you are and your character and what's of value to, it's going to show up. It's going to become evident in just who you are. You can't keep it hidden forever. So Obadiah would simply ask us, well, you want to know, you want to really know your heart? How do you treat your brother? What's your attitude toward other people? When your brother's down and he's hurting, you'll be tempted to give him another kick? Are you just a little too curious about how he got where he is and you want to know the details first? And well, what do you do? Well, you ask, who's my brother? And we can answer that on three levels. First of all, your brother is anybody that's in your biological family. There is a responsibility that we have to your moms and your dads and your brothers and sisters and your grandchildren and your grandparents. There's, there's a connectedness there, and that's important. And I say that because I know you're about to spend a lot of time with people that maybe you're really comfortable with and you enjoy, or maybe it's not so much like that. And it makes you anxious and it makes you tense and you just think about well, how long are we going to be there? And how long? One guy was telling me Wednesday night, he goes, we've worked out signals. And I say this, and she does this, and we know it's time to go or it's time to move on. And, uh, and, and I know that that happens, and it's going to happen for a lot of us. My dad and I were so different in every way. And I mentioned this at Cafe. Um, politically, spiritually, I think we just had really different agendas. And it was on a Thanksgiving that he and I were kind of arguing about politics, and, and he, would, he would think of some, he'd walk away, and he would think of, oh, I got a new, a, a new argument, you know, a better position, and he would come back in, and he'd say, oh, yeah, well, what about this? And one of his phrases he would use is, there's something else you don't know. I'll tell you something else you don't know. And he would always say that, and I think, I would know. So I would go to the holidays to see them, but before I would go, I would study up. I would prepare, you know, for the debate and the art because I knew it was going to come. And it would start off subtle. We'd all hug and say hello and all of this. But as the conversation go, you know, he'd bait me. He'd throw a little something out. And I'd throw a little something. So this was going on one day. And, and it had kind of gotten peaceful, but he came back in, and I was ready. So he's standing there, and he's going, well, Kathy is standing kind of behind him where I can look over his shoulder, and she's standing there, and she's going, stop it, stop it. Because <laughs> she knew what I was going to do. And I think that's, and some of you get that. 
folks, there is a responsibility. There's a connectedness to family, to your real flesh and blood, biological family. And I know I'm not like a really old guy yet, but some of you think, yeah, you're pretty much an old guy. But I've lost my grandparents and a brother and my in-laws and my brother-in-law, and I've, and I've lost my parents. And I just tell you, just love them with the best ability that you have, with everything that, that God gives you. You won't regret that. You won't regret doing the right thing one day. And I know it's hard, and I know you can get annoyed and frustrated, but just trust me, just love them while you can. Go to Thanksgiving, go to Christmas, do all of that. You'll be glad you did one day. I think there's another way that this pride leaks out because it's, uh, our neighbors are also more than just our biological family. Uh, it's our neighbor. You know, one time Jesus said, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And somebody spoke up and said, oh, okay, well, who's my neighbor? So Jesus tells this incredible story uh, that probably would have been, we're used to it, but it would have been, shocking, you know, to, to the people who are listening to him. He said, there's this Samaritan, and he, he saw someone he didn't even know, and they were in need of help, and he thought, well, here, what can I do to help them? And so he met all of their needs. He goes, that's what I'm talking about. They were neighbors. But they weren't. I mean, this, the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other, didn't like each other. They would actually, if you were walking some, down, you know, like the street and or a road, and you and you and somebody's coming at you, and you're a Jew, maybe they're a Samaritan, you would cross the street so you didn't even have to get anywhere close to them. And you wouldn't look at them. You would pretend you were talking on your cell phone. You would, I mean, you would do all these things to avoid any kind of contact. And Jesus says, "No, that guy, it's your brother. That's your brother. You need to take care of him." That's your neighbor. Here's what I think is most importantly, is that your brother is anybody that's related to you in Christ. We make kind of a big deal about that because we don't think it's just a metaphor. We don't think it's, it's just this picture. We, we believe it's, it's real. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And I've seen Christians say really mean things to each other. The relationship between members of the body of Christ is a blessed, it's a precious, special thing. And that's to be protected and nurtured. Do you know in the book of Acts alone, just in that one book, there are 51 references to the fact that we're, the fact that we're brothers and sisters? I just thought that was kind of cool because I'd see this, this early church struggling against their culture and they're so different and they're, they're just breaking out in so many ways and the gospel is exploding. But 51 times, they kind of come back to this idea that well, what fuels us or what helps us to hang together is we're brothers and sisters. And they, they saw that as a very important thing and uh, how they live and how you treated people. It's really important. So why is it so hard to truly weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice? Why do we tend to rejoice when our brothers or sisters are weeping and weep when they're rejoicing? You know, we, we kind of get it backwards sometimes. Well, how did God 
uh, deal with the proud. I, I want to wrap this up by gi giving you this idea of what happened next. In Obadiah 15, it says this. So they picked up... Um, wait, I'm in Jonah. <laughs> I just started reading the verses. Okay. That's one of the funniest things, I, to, not to you, but to me. Um, I just entertain myself. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations... As you have done it, so it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. And they shall drink and swallow and shall be as they had never been. What's interesting about this is that Edom did fall. They lost their independence. They were destroyed by... 320 B.C., the land was controlled by a completely different nation that nobody saw coming. The Edomites were thrown out of their own land and they're forced to live on the fringes of the world, you know, in the southern part of Judah, in the middle of nowhere. And God says, I'm trying to get you guys to see that what happens to Edom, that illustrates what happens to all nations, all people who oppose God and persecute his people. This is an amazing time of history that we live in. It's almost like a movie or something that we could have never imagined, but it's really happening. For those of us who are in Christ, I just want you to, to not lose heart and to don't despair. God is still on the throne. This is true even of the USA. I mean, we love our country. And we pray for our country. But where are the great kingdoms and the empires of the past who proudly vaunted themselves, who lost and cut all their connections with God? I read this years ago. Uh, it was Ruth Bell Graham was reading about the moral condition. I think, oh, if she could see us now. Uh, but of what had happened here in our country. And she turned to a friend and she said this, I think that if God does not bring judgment on the United States one day, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. A catastrophe awaits every nation that exalts itself against the Lord. But what about us? What about God's people? What about those who cry out to the Lord, so God, where is your justice? What can we do, and how, how, do you how can you see this happening and allow our brothers to do this? God, please do something. Some of you are in personal situations, and that's your prayer every day. Look at Obadiah 17. It says, in the Lord... I'm <laughs> doing it again. Verse 17. But in Mount Zion um, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau stubble. And they shall uh, burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. This is harsh. Those of Negev shall possess Mount Esau. And those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. And they possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. I mean, he's so specific about these prophecies. And he says, the exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem that are in uh, Shepharad, 
shall possess the cities of Negev, and survivors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, it's hard for us to relate to that. We're thinking, yeah, I don't get any of that. Just, you know, kind of a lot of hard names in the Old Testament. But it's just kind of interesting what happened uh, in the midst of all this. What God is saying is, I'm going to bring you back. This is not over. And whatever's going on with you right now, I want you to know this is not the end of the story. Don't think this is where your life has come to. You may be in one of the very first chapters or the middle chapter, and God's got all these other things yet to unfold for you. So don't give up yet. Don't throw it in yet. God's not done. You're not done. This nation wasn't done. He said, you're going to inhabit every place where your enemy lives right now. You're going to worship in the temple again, and you will find deliverance on Mount Zion. Can you imagine how that must have come across these people who are now being chained up, and they're being roped together, and they're being drug off to a land where they've never been, and the prophet's saying, it's going to be okay. Hey, guys, everything's going to be fine. And goes, are you sure? Tell, tell me that part again about, you know, it was just seemed like this hopeless, ridiculous thing. And I, I know you may be there. God sees the rest. God sees the rest of this. And the crazy thing is, is that they did. After 70 years in exile, they came back and they rebuilt their temple. But it wasn't just about Israel. What he did there was an example that he'll do that again on this climactic day uh, of the Lord. He's going to do that. He said, you know, at the end of history, he said, the kingdom will be the Lord's. That was the very last line. I know Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, all of this is meant to be a message of encouragement, especially, especially for God's people. He wants you to know that even though proud people around you prosper, even though this mean person seems to be winning and you seem to be losing, it's not over. I know that it's like it gets harder or you think, well, things just aren't going my way and the bad guys are getting all the breaks. God sees that and he's still in charge. Israel needed to believe, even at this moment that they were being humiliated, that their Edomites brothers just stood there and laughed at them, that something was going to change. I think we need to believe that. So Obadiah reminds us of it. The king is coming. His name is Jesus. You remember what he said? He said, he who exalts himself shall be humble, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. So if you're the one down, and you feel like you're getting kicked around, and you're being laughed at just like the Israelites were, I want you to know you've got a king. You're not in this on your own. But if you're among the proud, you are in a dangerous, dangerous place. It makes me think of two kings who confronted one another. One was an earthly king. His name was Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great, the one who slaughtered all the babies of Bethlehem trying to get rid of the Christ child. 
And this guy was extreme. He was just incredibly violent. His son, um, Antipas, was no better. He's the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. He divorced his wife so he could marry the wife of his half-brother. I mean, it was just this, it was just a mess. It was just a mess. But what you maybe didn't know is that both those Herods were Edomites. They were descendants of these people. And their outstanding characteristic was pride. Antipas was wealthy and he was powerful. And if anybody stood in his way, even if it was his own family, uh, the life of that person just meant as little to him as the lives of all those innocent children and babies did to his father. They were like this picture, the epitome of human pride. And there's this other king, Jesus. He was the true king of Israel. He was the heir to David's throne, but he didn't look like a king. He didn't even act like a king, and he stood before Antipas. Antipas wanted him to do a miracle. He said, show me a trick. I mean, it was just entertainment for him. And he said, I want to ask you all these questions. I've been dying to meet you. Everybody's talking about you. You're the buzz around. And so he asked all these questions, and Jesus just stood there. He wouldn't even answer. So he mocked him, and he dressed him in this elegant robe, and then he sent Jesus back to Pilate. And all during this time, Jesus could have at any time he wanted, have called legions of angels just to sweep Herod from his throne. But he didn't. Instead, just a few hours later, he would die this brutal criminal death. Jesus chose the hardest point and moment of his life to humble himself and to do the next thing that God had called him out to do. It was the cross. Herod exalted himself. Jesus humbled himself. In the end, Jesus was raised up in glory. And he will return. Herod died at an unknown date while in exile somewhere in Gaul. And after Herod's death, the Edomites slowly disappeared from history. I read Christian, Jewish, and secular scholars. Nobody knows exactly what happened to them. They're just gone. They disappeared from history, just like Obadiah prophesied. Even though on the day that he prophesied it, it seemed like the most contradictory religion Ridiculous statement. He could, these guys are going to disappear and these guys are going to be raised up. Are you sure? We're alarmed and we're angered and we're grieved by what's happening in the world, by what's happened in our country and what's happened in Paris and, and in the Middle East and, and in Africa. And how evil, arrogant, prideful people seem to be triumphing. And I just wanted you to remember that God is in control. Don't lose heart. 
Maybe in your personal life, a mean person is, is mistreating you. Could be a boss or a coworker or a neighbor. It may even be a brother or a sister. Don't lose heart. And don't make the mistake of doing the wrong thing because you're trying to get to the right thing. Just do the next right thing. Just do the next obedient thing. We have a king. And he sees us. And he loves us. And at just the right time, he will come. He will come. So live out in Christ who you are. And do the next right thing. Now we want to do something kind of special and, and a little different today. We want to pray over these boxes. We've been able to, to gather hundreds of boxes and they're going all over the world. We particularly know a few of the nations where they're going to be. And I, I just can't wait to know one day in heaven how God's going to bless and all the children's lives who maybe will be changed and encouraged and blessed just a little bit because this is all they're going to get. And that's not just like talk from from me or from Samaritan's Purse. This is all some kids are going to get. But for some, it's going to be the gospel that they hear and that they embrace. It's going to change their destiny. You're a part of that. We are a part of that. So let's take the next couple of minutes as, as we wrap up with this song and let's just pray over these boxes. And let's just pray a prayer of blessing. So I'm going to ask you, if you don't have to do this where you are, but if you'd like to, uh, just to come and just put your hand on a couple of these boxes and pray specifically for those. And then let's trust what God's going to do with them. And that'll be our benediction. And when we're finished praying and when we're done, I'm going to ask if some of you could to help us to load these up as they begin their journey. They're ready to go to the next place. We've got the van backed up out here. We've got our volunteers at the doors ready uh, to guide you and help you out. But as you leave, if some of you wouldn't mind staying behind or making a couple of trips in and just getting an arm load of these boxes, let's send them on their way. Let's get it started. Let's do that right now. Would you stand, please? Let's pray.